Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that could help you sleep, focus, act, or be better? Well, there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. I know because it's definitely helped me too. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? They can help you with wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has stuff that you could do with your kids too. And their approach to mindfulness can help you reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Like I said, I use Headspace as well. I used to use it back in the day, then I got off of it for a while to use another tool. But then, honestly, I came back to it, and it's even better. The voicing, the meditation, it definitely, even just with five minutes a day, it really changes everything for me. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Incredible. So you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. So imagine this. You do a Google search for something that you've written, and you find it. It's the number one result. But guess what? It's not yours. Well, it is yours. You've written it. It is your content. It's originally yours. But somebody else ripped it off and used it for themselves. That's not okay. Or imagine creating an online course and selling it for $197 and then finding out that it's on sale on another website. That same exact course that you spent all that time and money and effort to create and you see it on sale for $29 and people are buying it. This is stuff that happens to me all the time, and it happens to way too many people. So I wanted to bring on my attorney, Richard Chapo, who's been on the SPI podcast before, to talk about exactly what you should do when this happens to you. Maybe it's a blog post, maybe it's a YouTube video that somebody else took and set up on their own channel and then started to feed ads into it to try to make money from your content. Or maybe it's a course or a product that you have. In the digital space, it's so easy to do this and it's happening all the time. But it doesn't have to weigh you down and it doesn't have to be difficult for you to respond, which is why I have Richard on the show today. So before we get into that interview, just want to say thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for subscribing. Hit it. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now, so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host. His motto is, don't let today's opportunities become tomorrow's what-ifs. Pat Flynn. Hey, what's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening in on the Smart Passive Income Podcast today. Today, we have a conversation between myself and Richard Chapo from SoCalInternetLawyer.com. He's been my attorney for nearly a decade now, and he's helped me out so much to make sure I do things in a proper manner, but also to put out a lot of fires and, more importantly, make sure that my stuff doesn't get stolen. And this stuff, like I said, happens a lot, and we talk about in this episode how to handle it if this happens to you. So I'm hoping that... 
well, I was going to say, I hope the intro didn't scare you, but I kind of hope it did because, again, this stuff happens. You may be dealing with this right now. And although we do get a little technical in this episode, I'm just warning you, Richard always does a good job of making sure this is something that we can understand. And of course, on the show notes page, there's a transcript already available just in case you need to go back and read through things. And of course, you can find everything and the links and everything we went we mentioned here on the show notes at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 307. All right, here we go. An interview with Richard Chapo from SoCalInternetLawyer.com. Let's get right to it. Hey, everybody, what's up? I'm happy to welcome back Richard Chapo, who was featured in episode 231, which uh, was a f- actually kind of quite a surprise fan favorite. It was an attorney roundtable. We had a couple attorneys on talking about money and legal considerations when starting out, and I invited Richard back on to talk about something really important, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But Richard, man, thanks for uh, coming back on the show and helping all of us out. Thank you for having me back on. Looking forward to it. Yeah, to- totally. So what, what are we going to talk about today? What will people get out of listening through this whole episode? We are going to talk about uh, the much maligned area of copyright infringement, uh, specifically the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which applies to the internet, uh, what it is, how to use it to your benefit if somebody's stealing your content, um, and how to protect your site if you allow users to post to it, and kind of the analysis that, that is involved in all of that, um, as well as uh, you know looking at situations we've had with some of your content so people can see real-world examples. Yeah, so we'll talk about my stuff that has been stolen and what we've done to sort of help out, you know, stopping that. Um, so this is going to be really helpful. You know, stuff that not a lot of people talk about because uh, we don't often know exactly what we're talking about, which is why we have you on. So first of all, what is DMCA? Like, people have seen this around. People have seen D- DMCA sort of links on the bottom of different websites and such. But, like, wh- why is it there? When did it even, when did it even come into play? Sure. The uh, DMCA is an abbreviation for the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Uh, It was a uh, federal law that was enacted, well, is a federal law that was enacted in 1998. Um, And what the law was really doing was addressing copyright online, how certain situations would be dealt with. Um, the genesis behind the law being drafted was actually something that most of the listeners uh, and yourself don't really deal with. It was the criminalization of copyright infringement as far as breaking into digital or breaking into electronic devices and electronic platforms. So, for instance, um, you know, hacking on an Apple phone or something of that sort. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that scenario doesn't really apply much to, to what we're doing when we're talking about the business side. Um, but it did include uh, provisions for addressing how um, sites and apps um, would deal with copyright infringement when you had users uploading content. Um, so if you think back to 1998, most of us were still on dial-up modems, um, you know, and, and the law at that point and the, the internet, quite frankly, was very, um, very, very new as a commercial medium. There was no Facebook. Google was called Backrub at that time. Um, to give you an idea how different an era it was, the Senate unanimously passed uh, the DNCA, which today I don't think they would unanimously pass anything. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was a law that was designed to um, basically create an environment where sites could grow. Uh, and particularly, they were more focused on communities like forums. Um, could grow without having to be worried constantly about copyright infringement and be crushed by those. And basically what it did is it created a trade-off where sites such as Facebook or any site uh, that gets user content, user-generated content, has immunity from copyright infringement claims based on that user content. So long as they follow a compliance, or they follow a compliance process. Uh, it's not that difficult, um, but that's been the law since then. It's, it's 
received a good bit of criticism, um, but as often the case, the critics haven't really come up with a better idea. Um, so we still have it now, 17, 18 years later, um, and we're putting along. And it's definitely something as a listener, if you're starting a site or an app and you're going to allow users to get involved with it, you want to be familiar with it from the side that you want to protect yourself. And then you also want to be familiar with the side that, um, you know, you see people go out and they, they copy your blog post, they copy your courses, they copy whatever, uh, and republish it somewhere. You want to know how to deal with that. You can always call an attorney, and I'm glad to take your business, but quite frankly, we're expensive. Um, so if you can learn how to do it yourself, uh, a lot of the steps you should be okay and be able to uh, address those, particularly if you're not a big entity um, or well-known person such as yourself, Pat, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, it's often easier to get rid of it. When you're a bigger entity or somebody of that sort, you know, they'll, they'll often try and fight it as long as possible so that they can make money. <laughs> right. Is worrying about other people stealing content something we actually need to worry about? Is this common? Is this happening all the time? Yes, absolutely. All the time. Um, you know, it's just, it's, and it's, you know, a lot of people picture somebody sitting at a desk going out and copying the content. A lot of time it's just bots, um, you know, and software that will go out and, and harvest that information. I mean, there's completely legal software that's used to go out and, you know, harvest phone numbers and email addresses to build lists. Um, and so you, you do get that and they're automated, automated website builders and what have you. Um, so it is very, very common. So it is something you really want to address. If you use a site like Copyscape uh, or something of that sort that's free, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can put, particularly with text, you can put, you know, a paragraph in there, um, you know, and then be shocked at how many other sites that paragraph appears on. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a big problem. Now, is the DMCA something that once set up will stop people from stealing our content or is it something that then we can use after people steal our content to kind of help fix things? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not going to block people. Um, you can use it afterwards to go after them. Um, so if you want, we can talk about you know some of the experiences you and I have had with your content um, to kind of give an idea. But basically, you know, it's it's people come on, they steal your content, you find it somewhere else, and then at that point, you can use what are called the takedown procedures in the DMCA um, to go ahead and try to to get it pulled down. Okay, we'll talk about the takedown procedures uh, in just a minute. But there's been a few examples. I mean. Every time I publish a blog post now, Richard, you know that there are dozens, if not hundreds of sites out there that scrape that content, essentially stealing it, putting it on their own site. Now, some of them do include a link. Now, is that that stealing or is that okay? Because, well, at least they're crediting me for it. Right. Well, it's not so much, we don't categorize it stealing, we categorize it as infringing, copyright infringement. It is still infringing. There is, you know, the web is wonderful. There's lots of free information. Unfortunately, some of it's just wrong. There are people out there that will tell you that if you link back to the original source, um, you know, that that is a defense to copyright infringement claim. It is not. It has never been. It never will be. It's, I I don't know where that came from. Um, That's more of an idea about plagiarism. So if you think if you ever had to do a paper for school or something of that sort, you know, and they would say link to your, your, your resources or list your references, mm. um, it's a plagiarism thing. So when you do that, that's not. Now, we also have to remember that the web is a sharing environment. So a lot of times people don't really care. I'll give you an example. There's a professor who writes on internet legal issues, esoteric issues. And I, I look at his blog all the time because, quite frankly, he breaks some things that I otherwise wouldn't see. And I've reposted his post a couple of times onto LinkedIn. And 
he finally contacted me and said, you know, I don't want my post up on LinkedIn. I'd never really even thought about it. <laughs> so technically I was infringing on his content. And then obviously I removed the post and it wasn't a big deal. But, um, you know, you always have to think about that. A lot of people, you know, they see the Facebook button, you know, Instagram button, Twitter button, whatever it is. And, you know, they click and share. Always just make sure first, you know, when you look at that content that, in fact, those are there and they want them shared. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the link in and of itself is not... Um, you know, going to get you around infringement. And yeah, when people take your posts and they just republish it, particularly if there's nothing there, um, you know, then obviously that's just kind of a classic infringement. Now, my other question related to this would be, let's say that I found a piece of content that I thought was amazing and I wanted to republish it on my own blog. Obviously, I can't just take it and do that, whether I have a link or not, like we just established. But what if I were to ask that person permission? If that person says yes, is that verbal yes, okay? Is it an email that would have to do that? Or would there be some other more formal way to make sure that I'm, I'm okay if I then take that person's stuff with his permission and post it on my own site? Well, the law school answer is that you would want a release document. Um, the real world answer is as long as it's in writing, um, you know, I feel comfortable standing in court and defending it. I mean, if they, if you say, Hey, you know, I love this post. Do you mind if I, I republish it on, you know, smart passive income? And they say, they reply in an email. Yes. Um, and you do that. And then they later say, well, technically you didn't meet the copyright infringement restrictions. Um, you, you know, I'm fine with that in court. Yeah, they could sue you. Um, but when we're standing in front of the judge or the jury, one of the questions that's used to evaluate whether there was infringement, more importantly, what the damages would be, what, what is the reasonableness of the people's position. And I can guarantee you, if we're standing in front of a judge, definitely a judge is going to look at them and, you know, give them the middle finger salute and out the door they're going to (laughs) go, you know, because if they gave you permission in an email, you know, that that's just, you know, from a common sense standpoint, that should suffice. And yes, there are technical legal arguments that can be made, but some of the things that lawyers get in trouble with, um, you know, having done complex litigation, I worked for a very, very good litigator Um, for a long time. He defended wrongful death cases and sophisticated contractual matters, you know, across uh, borderlines and things which are very technical. Mm -hmm. And he used to always tell me, common sense, common sense, common sense, never forget common sense. So I think in that situation, you know, if you have an email that comes back and says, yes, you can use it, you know, they're not going to get very far um, trying to sue you. Now, an oral promise or some kind of oral statement that I would never rely on, you know, because think about it. If you think about uh, if there was ever a trial and you get in there, you know, you want some kind of objective evidence, um, because if they just give you an oral answer and then they get on the stand, and they say, no, I never said that. Well, how do we prove that they didn't? Mm-hmm. It's a he said, she said kind of thing at that point. Right. OK, now let's get into some of the times where some of my stuff has gotten taken and uh, we'll go through examples of that, and then we can hopefully give people clear instructions on what to do if that were happen to happen to them. And we're not just talking about content being scraped either. For me, like when I see those bots and other people take my stuff, like it's not worth my time even to kind of worry about that right now. Although I maybe shouldn't have said that because now people might do that. And anyway, right. <laughs> um, with the courses though, so I've just recently come out with courses. Smart from scratch was my first one, and a couple months later. I had a, a, an email from a fan who said, hey, Pat, this website's uh, selling your course and for like 80% off. And so I check it out and there it is. It's my course with my name on it and the, the name of my course on it. And it's being sold for a significantly lower price point, which is obviously wrong. They're making money off of the content that I created in the course and the IP that I have. And of course, the first thing I did was I reached out to you. Right. And then, and then what happens? 
So at that point, um, you know, we take a look at it, and obviously, uh, in that situation, there were really no fair use defenses, which is something we'll talk about in a few minutes. Uh, it was just obvious infringement, and um, there were other courses that were listed that were not your courses, other courses that the person had obviously taken from other people. Um, and so in that situation, you know, from the DMCA perspective, the response would be to file what's called a takedown notice. Um, but because I'm an attorney, you know, a lot of people, they get a little fearful when they get a nasty letter from an attorney. So instead, in that case, I skipped the DNCA or I held it off for a while and went with a cease and desist letter. Um, if you have somebody who's – I wouldn't do them for blog posts personally because, like you're saying, you know, people are going to steal those right and left. And it really becomes expensive to try to fight it all the time. Um, but with a course or something substantive – uh, in that case, you may want to hire an attorney because what a cease and desist letter says is basically what you would think if you think about, you know, what's a horrible letter from an attorney and it says, you know, they're a jerk. Uh, you know, I represent Pat Flynn and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we have this copyrighted course and we recognize that you're selling it, you know, in a non-authorized manner. And then, you know, you make various, you know, substantive threats based on, you know, what the copyright damages are for something like that uh, and the things that can happen. Um, so, again, it, in a course type of situation, uh, you know, or something valuable that's being stolen, not just a blog post, but something, you know, that has inherent value, um, that would probably be the best way to go. And in that case, that, you know, it obviously worked and they took it down. Uh, in a more traditional case, um, you know, if that's not really a possibility or it doesn't look like a good option with the takedown notice, basically what you're going to do is you're going to send them a takedown notice. Uh, the takedown notice is just, um, basically five, six elements that you have to put in it. And what it is, is basically the first element is you have to identify the infringing material via, via the URL. So we look at their site, you know, and what's the URL where that page is appearing Two, you have to post, you know, the, the uh, URL on your site where you have the original content, then you have to make a statement under penalty of perjury that you have a good faith belief uh, that they don't have the right to use it. Another declaration saying under penalty of perjury that you know you are authorized to submit this takedown. And what that means is either um, you're an authorized agent, such as myself, an attorney, or you're the person that owns the copyright, such as yourself, Pat. Um, and then finally, you, you sign the notice just by saying, I hereby sign the notice. Once you submitted that, the DMCA is triggered and at that point, that site has to take down um, that content if it's user-generated content. Now, what really happens in a lot of cases is this is not user-generated content. The site owner just stole the content. Um, so in that situation, the best way to deal with it is really go hunt down their host. And you can do that by doing who has search for their domain and then looking through the uh, domain listing. They will often list the host sometimes by sequential numbers uh, instead of the actual host. Um, but you can do a search for those, and you can often find the host. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit. Um, but when you find the host, uh, you can submit the DMCA takedown to the host. And here's where it gets kind of interesting. Um, under the DMCA, a website uh, is protected so long as they comply with the, with, uh, the compliance process. One of the factors of that is that they have to keep a list of repeat infringers. And as the name suggests, these are people who are constantly getting complaints against them. Uh, and the number's surprisingly low, maybe three a year, two to three a year, two to three, two years. The company will actually set its own policy, in this case, the host. And if that person gets uh, that number of complaints, the host will take down their site and will cancel their account and will terminate them. Um, so that's how you can get them to take down the whole site. But if you're looking just at the content yourself, when you send them that DMCA takedown notice, the host will go to that site 
and we'll either take down the page or we'll send them a notice saying, hey, we received a copyright infringement complaint. You know, we're going to take down your content in one or two days and you need to respond. Um, now, at that point, in 95% of the cases, that content's going down. Mm-hmm. Because they don't have any justified reason for using it. Uh, just to carry out the process, if they were to count, do what's called a counter notice and say, no, I have a right to use this, uh, the host would then send that information to us, as well as all the information they have for them about their address, their name, things of that sort. And then we would have 10 to 14 business days to file a copyright infringement uh, lawsuit against that party in uh, federal court. And so that's how the DMCA basically works. Again, when you submit a DMCA takedown um, uh, notice to a host in 95% of the cases, you know, that's just going to take care of it. Um, something else that can come up if you're dealing with a, a pure black hat um, practitioner is they're going to host outside of the United States. Hmm. So Amsterdam, somewhere like that. Um, and the DMCA is only United States law. Now, there are treaties that it's supposed to be enforced in other countries. And, you know, if you want to spend 80 grand in attorney's fees, you know, we can go through that process. Most people don't. That's why the black hat, black hat persona is, is, you know, using these offshore entities. So, at that point, what you do is you look at their payment processor and you look at their monetization strategy. And you try and identify any companies in those two areas that are in the U.S. So, in your situation, when we were dealing with uh, uh, one of the courses being stolen, you know, I hunted through their payment process and found out they were using PayPal. Well, PayPal is a U.S. company. And so, if if we had not been able to resolve the matter without too many problems, you know, I would have served a takedown notice on PayPal. And PayPal would have closed their account hmm. and seized whatever money they had in there. So, as you can imagine, that has quite an effect. <laughs> right. Uh, will slow people down. The other side of that is if they're promoting affiliate sites or anything of that sort, and any of those are in the U.S. And often, if they're not in the U.S., you can send a notice to them as well, and they will often act. Um, the one fortunate thing that we have being in the U.S. is that we're a huge commercial market and a huge consumer market. Um, so, most companies will be doing business with the U.S. in one form or another. And as long as you can identify those areas, uh, you know, you're usually in good shape uh, and you'll be able to get it taken down. Now, there is one caveat to this that came up in um, the case where your, your course was stolen. Um, there were other courses stolen on the site. And one of the questions that was raised was, uh, you know, I, I had your course taken down, but I didn't have the whole site taken down. And why wasn't that the case? Well, the DMCA only deals with the content that has been stolen. It does not deal with the whole site. Um, so, if you think about – it makes sense if you think about it in a bigger scale. Think about Facebook. 1.4 billion users. Um, Facebook obviously can't monitor it all. And so, if somebody posts a cartoon or a photograph from a magazine or something on their site, there's clearly copyright infringement. Um, you know, if the copyright holder was able to make a complaint that resulted in all of Facebook taking being taken down instead of that – particular post, you know, it would be chaos and the internet itself would, you know, kind of grind to a halt. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's why you can't do that. Um, you know, there are, again, there are measures for dealing with that, which is mostly the repeat infringer. That's kind of why that provision is there. So, that if it's somebody getting constant complaints, um, you know, all of their stuff will be taken down and that's the general hope. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Now, my question is, okay, is simply creating a course enough for you to go out and give these takedown notices if people steal them or is it is there something that i have to do as a course creator to kind of make it official or like make it yeah this is your stealing or because it's, it's like at what point does it become officially a course um well that's a good point there's some interesting detailed legal analysis on that my general position is once you publish it once you publish uh, it, it 
it is actually copyrighted before then. It's really copyrighted when you finish it. Um, you know, but there's, you know, there are questions of how do you establish exactly that date. Um, mm. When dealing with other companies online, when you're serving a takedown notice or something of that sort, it's so much easier if you can just say it's on the site. It was on the site at this date, if anybody asks questions. Uh, and obviously that date is going to be before, you know, the person who stole it put it up on their site. Um, and you can use the Wayback Machine and other vehicles, you know, for establishing that. So as long as you can show, you know, that your content, your original content was up before, um, you know, the copied version, you're going to be fine. Cool. Okay, so what, what can we do right now to sort of protect ourselves, whether we have a course or not, but just to keep us in the safest place possible? Um, well, you know, I mean, I think there are two ways to break it down. One is, you know, how to stop people from stealing your content. Um, so why don't we talk about that first? Sure. Basically, the, the simplest approach um, is to learn the takedown notice process. So we just talked about you have those six elements. If you do a search online for takedown notice example, you'll see them. This is a basic form. There's no magic to it or anything. Um, you'll see copies of them. And then you have those and you want to put those together. If you see your content stolen somewhere and then you're going to serve it on um, you know, whoever the host is for that site. Um, you know, that's typically where, I, well, typically I will actually send it to the site first. I give them a chance because sometimes what will happen. So let me give you an example. There are a lot of people that build websites out there for, uh, medical practices and lawyers and people like that. And the professionals or the individuals in the businesses don't really know anything about copyright. And so people, particularly freelancers will build a site and they'll use copyrighted content without getting permission. And then they publish it. I have a chiropractor this has happened to. And, uh, you know, they started getting notices from uh, the chiropractor started getting notices from Getty Images about, you know, he was infringing on their content because there was an image on the site uh, that had not been purchased. And he had no idea. And, you know, I talked to the webmaster and the webmaster had just taken it. The, the web designer he had just taken it and republished it. And um, so, you know, you're going to run into situations like that. So sometimes just sending a message directly to them saying, hey. You know, what are you doing? Uh, you know, we'll get it taken down. If not, then do the takedown notice. Now, unfortunately, the law has gotten a little more complex here than it used to be. And we have to blame um, a baby and Prince, um, Prince the musician. What happened was is there was a case uh, that involved a dancing baby on YouTube. It was a case called Lens versus Universal. Universal was the publisher for Prince. And it's a dancing baby that baby dances for, I don't know how long, but they sample Prince song for 20 to 29 seconds, depending on how you, how you count the, the provisions of the song that are in the video. Ten years of litigation <laughs> occurred <laughs> over whether this was copyright infringement or not. Um, and it's a fascinating discussion of wasted money on legal fees and all kinds of just everything that people hate about the law. This case pretty much exemplified it. One of the things that came out of the case, however, though, was last year, um, the Ninth District, Ninth Federal District, which covers California, Oregon, um, they basically said that before you serve a takedown notice, you have to do a fair use analysis and have a reasonable belief that there's no fair use defense to the use of your content. So, what does that mean? Fair use is a subject I hate explaining because it's very um, amorphous under the law. It's very mm -hmm. vague. There's no bright lines. But basically what fair use is, is the idea that you're using the content in some way that is an ex has a defensive exemption to an infringement claim. So what they think about like a parody, 
um, or think about a movie review, somebody uses an image, something of that sort, that's fair use. They're clearly not copying, you know, 10 seconds out of the next Star Wars movie for the purpose of selling it and making money. You know, they're just doing a review. Uh, and so that's news. Or if you do a parody where, you you know, you do some kind of a mock-up Spaceballs. Spaceballs was a movie that was a parody of Star Wars. Um, you know, those kinds of things are going to be fine. Um, but when you're considering takedown uh, or you're considering the fair use defense, you have to consider some basic elements. Um, and I hate them so much that I actually wrote them down. So, so one is the <laughs> – so basically what fair use is, is copying of uh, copyrighted material done for a limited or transformative uh, purpose, such as com- comment on, criticize, or parody. Uh, as long as you do that, you don't have to get permission from the copyright owner. The courts look at four elements. One is the purpose and character of your use. And what that basically means is did you just copy it and republish it, or did you add anything to it? So if you've added something to it or you've made some changes or something substantive that's you know, significant, um, so you think like a rap song that samples somebody else's music, you know, then that's in your favor. That, that would suggest a you know, fair use element there. The second issue is the nature of the copyrighted work. Uh, and so what we're talking about here is, is the copyrighted work something that was fully created by the person, um, the copyright owner, or is it something that was created by them but incorporates a lot of things that are not copyrighted? So, for instance, you cannot copyright facts. So if I was to write a book, um, you know, a timeline of CIA actions, and it, it's just citing facts, you know, this date, this happened, this happened, the copyright on that book is much weaker than if I just, you know, went out and wrote, uh, you know, the latest Harry Potter book. Obviously, that's all going to be fiction. It's all created by J.K. Rowling. And, you know, so in that situation, the courts are going to view uh, the fiction novel as having a much stronger copyright because it's really a creative work. Um, so you're going to look at that situation. The third issue is the amount uh, and uh, the amount of the portion taken. So if we think about the baby case we were just talking about, you know, they didn't sample the whole song. They just sampled 20 seconds, you know, while the baby's dancing, and then we spent 10 years arguing over is 20 seconds too much or not. Um, and that's, you know, kind of the nature of fair use. The fourth element is the effect uh, that the use has upon the potential market. So, as we were talking about with your course, um, you know, if this person's republishing the course, you're not getting any income out of it, and they're republishing it at an 80% discount. That's obviously not going to be a fair use defense. They're using it purely for to profit, and it's hurting you economically. So in that situation, the fair use defense fails. Um, so the reason that I hate fair use defenses is twofold. One, um, unless it's just an obvious case, such as a parody, you whether whether an act is considered fair use or not is only determined at trial in your copyright infringement case. So you only learn whether you qualify or not. You know, after spending you know many, many thousands of dollars, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, you know, at trial, and it's an argument that's made to the jury, and the Supreme Court has wrestled over you know which one of these four elements is important or not important, um, and you will see cases that are very similar, uh, very similar factually, that get decided differently, primarily because one side or another has a better lawyer than the other side. Um, it's really just an argument that's made in court. And so, unless it's an obvious case, you know, fair use is something, um, you know, that you generally want to be kind of leery of. And I know people get online and they scream and yell and pound their fists, this is fair use. And say, really? Cool. Great. Give me 50 grand and then, you know, we'll go prove it in court. And then suddenly they're not as excited. Um, so, when, when looking at content that somebody has stolen from you, just look at it and 
you know, try to keep those elements in mind, which obviously you won't. Um, but just look at it and try and think, you know, is there a is there a substantive reason for them to do that? Is there, uh, you know, some kind of a verified use for that? Are they criticizing me? Are they are they doing a parody? Is there some element to it, you know, that would potentially substantiate it? Um, so to give you an example, let's just use you know your sample so that we can go through and show it. So when when that site had your your course, um, they stole it, they republished it, they republished the um, sales page, and they were just selling it. So if we look at the four elements, the purpose and character of the use, did they add anything to that content? Did they add anything to the court? Was there any kind of, you know, um, you know, addition or anything that added value to it? No, they just stole the exact course. Um, so that that element of fair use failed. Uh, you know, the nature of the copyrighted work, well, you created it from scratch. Um, so, that you know, your course is much more like a fiction book than it would be, you know, some type of a factual recitation. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, again, no, not fair use. Um, the amount uh, of the course that was taken, they took the whole thing. Um, so they failed on that one and then did it hurt you economically? And obviously, you know, somebody sells your product at 80% off and isn't even giving you a piece. Then I'm going to say, yeah. Um, so in that case, all four elements failed so we could go after them. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's an unfortunate development, unfortunate legal requirement. Again, right now it's only really in the ninth district and the court has received so much criticism. That I'm not sure how much longer it will last. Um, but you know, that is kind of where it stands there in the rest of the U S um, you know, you don't really need that. Mm -hmm. You can just go forward and file takedown uh, notices. It's not a big deal. Um, so that's the big element of that. Uh, and then again, who to serve notices on, uh, you know, really you want to focus on, um, you know, I would always contact the site first, unless they're just obviously stealing your content and trying to make money off of it. Um, and in that case, you know, to me, the host is the place to go. And the reason being is that the host, you know, obviously is hosting thousands of sites. So, one, they understand the DMCA implicitly. And two, uh, you know, maintaining their reputation is very important to them. And they, they make sure that they get rid of re, uh, repeat infringers. So, if we talk about Bluehost, we talk about, you know, any of the big guys, GoDaddy, whatever. You know, they're very cognizant of this. Um, because if they, if they blow it and they don't um, get rid of their repeat infringers, they can run into huge problems. Um, Pat, you're out here with me in San Diego. Are you on Cox or are you on Time Warner? I'm on AT&T. AT&T, oh, you rebel. Um, <laughs> I'm on Cox. And uh, so what we're talking about is the cable provider. Uh, and so I use Cox and Cox recently ran into a wee bit of a DMCA problem. Um, what had happened was <laughs> Cox was receiving complaints, uh, DMCA complaints from big content producers, uh, music producers and movie producers. And what they were saying was basically, hey, your users are you know posting this content you should comply with copyright infringement law and the dmca uh, you know and do this and cox did and so what they would do is they would cancel accounts for people that were you know just obviously you know repeat infringers of music and what have you problem was um one of the music producers i think started realizing that these people were getting back online and couldn't figure out how and so they sued Cox, and it was part of the discovery process where sides exchanged documents and things, and the email came out. And what the email said, it was from a manager at Cox, and he was telling the entire sales staff, okay, here's what happens. You know, if we have repeat infringers, you need to cancel their accounts. And then, I don't remember the specifics, but it basically said, you know, after 45 days, contact them and sign them back up again. Want, want. Yeah, well, want, want, $25 million, want, want. That was the judgment against them. 
um, because they were failing to get rid of those repeat infringers. Um, and I can guarantee you every host company is fully aware of that. <laughs> so if they're getting your complaint about a site, they're going to react. And it may take them a few days. Google gets something like 8 million complaints a month. Um, so you're going to have to wait a week or so uh, for them to get around to it. They have you know, a herd of people trying to deal with these issues. Uh, but with a host, you know, you can always get that. And that is one final thing that I skipped. Let me mention. In some cases, you're going to get really unlucky. And the person who takes your content is going to be all offshore. So we're talking about somebody who lives in Brazil, they're hosting in Amsterdam, uh, their payment processor is in Germany, and they're taking the money as Bitcoin. So what do you do in that situation? Um, the answer is you either go spend a bunch of money chasing them around the world, um, or you try to cut off their traffic resources. Uh, you can go to Google, Yahoo, and Bing and submit DMCA takedown notices there, and they will pull that, that link um, to the stolen content which can help. You can try it with social media. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but that's really the best approach that you're going to be able to take in that situation. In a lot of cases, if you can get rid of the search engine traffic, this, the, the site tends to disappear. Um, but that's, you know, unfortunately, the situation you're in. beauty of the World Wide Web is it's worldwide. The downside is it's worldwide. Um, so sometimes, you know, trying to enforce this can be difficult. Some websites like YouTube have their own uh, copyright infringement forms that you can fill out. Um, yes. I've done that several times. I've had a few people who have literally downloaded my videos and then republished them as their own, even though it's my face on there, even, you know, the same content and there's thousands of views and they're running ads and they're making money off of it and they're not linking to me at all. And even if they are, that's just not cool. And so yes. YouTube has a form that's really easy to fill out. And this is just like these other ones, um, where you, you put in your name, address, all this stuff. You link to the infringing video. You link to the original one, and all this other stuff. And just I've had those been fixed within 24 hours. You know, YouTube's pretty fast, and Google, relatively for how many they get, um, they, they're really fast too. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a definite problem. Uh, one of the things you will see with those sites because they are large um, is they will often not automatically take down the content. So what you're talking about, they will because it's just an obvious infringement. If there's an area that's a little more questionable, sometimes they will do not. They will not um, just because they believe in free speech. And, and my threat to them, quite frankly, has been, "Well, you're waving the DMCA," and Google says, "Well, look at our balance sheet, and you know we're not exactly concerned." Um, you know because they have the money on hand to deal with that. Um, so even if they were found in you know as a co-infringer, a joint infringer um, with somebody, you know, th then you're gonna you know they have so much money, it's not really gonna matter. Um, you know if the EU is finding them 2.8 billion dollars and really not afraid of me um so yeah that is a definite situation it kind of brings us to the second side of the dmca which is also very important which is protecting your site from the concept of um, if you have users posting to your site so some sites uh, even like comments too yes and comments as well um comments the chance of you having a copyright infringement problem in your comments is very low um, but the price of complying is so cheap that, you know, you might as well do it. Um, and particularly because Europe has some very bizarre views on copyright infringement. Um, so in Europe, they've actually had some cases where they've said that if you link to, co to content, excuse me, that is infringing, um, then you can be found liable if you knowingly did it, which is just horrible. <laughs> it's, it's a terrible, terrible interpretation. Um, because if you think about it, I, I mean, I link to stuff all the time. I have no idea if it's original or not. Um, you know, Huffington Post, Yahoo, I mean, they they link to all kinds of different things. 
Um, so it's somewhat of a clash between practicality and the law, but it, it, it is out there. We don't have that rule in the U.S., um, although linking is still shockingly um, open to a lot of different legal interpretations. Um, but anyway, so let's talk about your site. So you have a site or an app, and you're going to allow people to post to it in one form or another, which is almost always the case these days. There's almost always some form of interactivity. So the question then becomes, well, what if they post something uh, that is infringing on somebody else's copyright? Um, so again, we look at the Facebook example. You know, Somebody posts a, a meme or an image or whatever it may be. Um, you know, at that point, under traditional copyright law, because you have it on your site, you are technically potentially jointly liable with them for copyright infringement. And so the answer has been um, through the DMCA. Is what you want to do is you want to comply with the DMCA um, compliance process that is going to uh, give you immunity. It's called a safe harbor immunity. And it's found in Section 512C of the DMCA. And I'm sure all the listeners will go look at that section. Basically, what it says is as long as you designate a DMCA agent, and this is a person that's going to be listed on your site, if you go to Smart Passive Income and you go to the bottom of the site and you click DMCA, you will see yours truly listed in the DMCA policy. This is a person who will receive copyright complaints um, regarding anything um, on the site that the user has uploaded. Facebook has one. Everybody has one. Um, this agent has to be registered with the copyright office, and it's a um, they're listed in a public domain that's online, so everybody can see them. Um, but you need this agent now. Once the agent receives a takedown notice that we talked about with the six elements, uh, at that point they're then going to communicate. If they work for the site, they're just going to take down the content. Um, or if they're an independent agent like myself, and then I'm going to contact the site and talk to them about, look, you need to take this down. And here's an area where the DMCA gets a lot of criticism that a lot of people don't understand. Um, if a copyright complaint comes in. The content in question has to be taken down. It must be taken down. It's not a choice. You don't look at the content and decide yes or no. Um, it must be taken down under the law. So if somebody you know, submits something to your host saying that you're infringing and the host just takes down that page uh, or, God forbid, your whole site, they're doing that because the law requires them to do that. So just a few seconds ago, I said some of these big, bigger entities won't do that. Why won't they do that? Because they don't care if they waive the DMCA protections. Um, you know, a, a copyright infringement case, worst case scenario, you're Drake and you completely rip somebody off, uh, rip somebody else's songs or lyrics off or whatever, you know, maybe $10 million, which to you, me, and most people is, you know, a ghastly amount of money. Mm -hmm. But to YouTube, Google, Facebook, you know, Instagram is not. Um, but so that's what's going to happen in that situation. And then you're going to take that content down. And then at that point, a notice is sent out to the person who posted it. If you have contact information for them, typically you will in one form or another. Um, and you send an email saying, hey, we received copyright infringement from, you know, evil record producer, you know, company. Um, we took down your content. You know, if you want to file a counter notice with us, please do so. You may want to talk to a lawyer. Now, again, in 95% of cases, that's the end of the game, mm -hmm. um, and you know the content's down and it's all done. In the 5% of cases where they come back and file a counter notice, at that point, you're going to say, all right, and you send that off to uh, the, the copyright um, holder who made the original content, uh, the original complaint, as well as any information that you have regarding that person. Uh, and then if you don't hear back from them, 10 to 14 days, between 10 and 14 days after receiving the counter notice, you republish the content. And at that point, the copyright holder has to decide whether they want to go through the expensive process of filing um, a copyright infringement case in federal court. 
if they do file that, they file it against the person who posted the content, not against you. So your site is protected. That's the whole beauty of the DMCA. Um, so if, if, Pat, you were to post something on Facebook that infringed on one of my fascinating legal arguments on my blog, um, you know, legal articles, and I sued you for copyright infringement for doing that, I couldn't sue Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the advantage with all your, with your site, and that's why you always want to comply with your site because uh, it's going to protect you from the number one legal claim that arises online. Uh, and that's the steps that you take. So if they do go through that process, sometimes they will try to name you as a defendant. Any lawyer has half a brain uh, can get you out of that case quickly because uh, the judge will see you might have to go to what's called a summary judgment, which means you'd have to sit around for a while to get out. But you will get out. Um, and that's the basic process you know, of dealing with that. Um, one thing about all of this that you do need to know is in 2016, um, our tax dollars at work, the United States Copyright Office finally launched an online DMCA uh, agent registration system, uh, despite the law being passed in 1998 uh, for roughly 18 years. Uh, you had to send in file uh, paperwork to get it done. It literally took two months to get registered. They had one poor clerk who was doing all the work for every for the entire world, um, and it was just chaos. Uh, they've now launched an online system, uh, and you, go, you can go in there. I'll include uh, links. I'll give that links so that they'll be in the, uh, the notes, and you can go to uh, the system to try to get registered. There are videos and what have you. Um, it's very simple, and it costs an extremely obscene amount of money, $6.00. Um, and it's renewed every three years, so you'll have to pay $6 every three years. But basically what you're going to list is uh, the name of the agent, and it can be yourself as a site owner, uh, the street address, the real street address, not a P.O. box or any of the shenanigans a lot of us have used in the past, uh, a phone number and an email um, contact for the site, and you also have to list all of your online properties. Um, For people who are working from home, who might be a little alarmed about one of their fans appearing on the doorstep, um, you can use a DMC agent service. Full disclosure, I have one. It's dmcagentservice.com. And basically what we do is we list ourselves instead of yourself so that your name and your phone number and your email aren't out there. There are a couple different uh, groups that do it. Um, and that's you know gives you some privacy. It doesn't give you a ton of privacy because you still have to come up with a street address. Uh, but if it's a worst-case scenario... Uh, where you're really concerned about your safety, we can petition the copyright office, and they will sometimes let you use a PO, uh, PO box. Um, so there are solutions for it. Um, but going ahead and doing that process is really going to protect you. It's going to be, um, you know, really important to do. It's it's that's one of those things that you can do once, and you'll probably forget about it um, because you're not going to run into a lot of issues. But if you have sites where you're allowing people to post uh, videos or Anything of that sort, um, you know, you really want to take that step because it just, it gives you me, it's like buying insurance uh, and it costs you six bucks. Um, So where can you find more about all of this? There is a great book called the DMCA uh, Handbook and it was uh, written by an attorney in Arizona and it's on uh, Amazon. Unfortunately, it went out of print. I did recently speak with her, however, and it's going to come back uh, for a second edition, apparently sometime in October or November. Um, so you can look on Amazon, uh, you know, to pick that book up if you need it. And it basically explains the process of, okay, you have a site, you're going to allow people to post your site, you know, how do you, how do you deal with the DMCA? Um, if you need an attorney for one of these things, obviously just copyright, you can literally contact, I'm in California, um, attorneys are licensed by state, you can contact uh, any copyright attorney in your state or in your town, there should be one, at least one, um, and you can contact them. They'll be able to help you with it, at least guide you with it, uh, guide you through the process. But 
The DMCA is very controversial with users. It's very controversial with copyright owners, but for businesses, and that's you if you're launching a site online, um, it, it is incredibly valued. There's very few laws that give you immunity completely from monetary damages for liability um, in any area of business, and this is one. So really, really, really take advantage of it. Okay, so the one call to action that you have for people would be to, once again, what? Uh, if you have a site where you're going to allow people to interact on it, get in compliance with the DMCA. Um, Is that including just, comments? That does include comments. I would do it for yeah anything um, because you know I've, I've looked through comments on you know some of your posts. And sometimes people will post an image or a video or something, or they can even quote somebody else. If you quote somebody else, you know you, you sometimes can run into infringement claims. And obviously, there are tons of uh, you know, memes and what have you that you know quote people, and you don't see anything come out of that. But you never know. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, it's only six bucks. So, <laughs> so you know, if you want to get a bang for your buck, you know, this is the place to do it. Um, so, I would definitely do that. And then with stolen content, you know, go look up the takedown notices. They're really simple. I probably made it sound far more complex than it is. Um, they're really simple. And then just hunt the host of the, of the site that is stealing your content and complain to the host. And the host will 99.9% of the time deal with it. Cool. Thanks, Richard. If people have questions, uh, are they welcome to ask them in the comment section of this podcast episode? Sure. Uh, yeah, ask in the comments. Uh, you can also reach me at my site at SoCalInternetLawyer.com. Uh, and if you need a DMC agent, uh, you can contact me through DMCAgentService.com. Very creative title. Um, we charge 70 bucks a year, but I'll give you a discount. Um, I hadn't actually thought about that. How much of a discount will I get? Uh, I'll leave it up to you, man. <laughs> uh, come on. Uh, about a 20% discount uh, if you mention uh, uh, Pat's podcast. 25 25 <laughs> what am i made out of money uh, okay 25 yay see what i do for you guys oh, you guys are awesome <laughs> no check out richard he's been great he's been so supportive of uh me and he's helped me through so many situations um and i'm going to continue to work with him because he's fantastic and if you're in california definitely look him up for sure so um any final parting words i know this is maybe quite exhausting for people to listen to richard maybe a little bit overwhelming for some as well any any just calming tips from from somebody who knows all this stuff to help people out um you know i think that using common sense with copyright is really um something that can help you you know the dmca can sound confusing particularly probably the way i presented it but once you do it literally if you spend three hours going through it and running through processes you'll have it down and yeah. you'll be protected forever so it's, it's a good investment um, again watch out for the dmca handbook um, again it should come out in a couple months um, so if you can get download that she explained the attorney's name is i forgot her first name mabelson i believe is her last name um, but she explains it not in legal terms she explains it in okay you own a site you know here's what you do and i think she gives you even gives you sample uh, messages to send out to somebody um so it's very helpful i think the book's a little expensive it's like 45 bucks but it's a lot cheaper than hiring me cool richard thank you so much i appreciate you uh we'll uh, link to everything you mentioned to in the show notes and if you have any questions head on over to the show notes page on the blog and um richard will be there to support you so thanks man appreciate it great hey thanks for having me on all right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Well, it wasn't really an interview, more like a conversation, a lot of information I know. So again, like I said in the beginning, make sure you head to smartpassiveincome.com slash session 307. Remember that number 307 in case anything happens to you and your website or your course, you can come back to this and reference it for how to handle that situation. And I do hope that never happens to you. 
But once you get to a certain level, it will. And so just be aware that this stuff exists, but also this episode exists to help you as well. If you could go to smartpassiveincome.com slash session 307, in case you have any questions, of course, the links are there, like I said. But if you have any questions or want any clarification on this, Richard, he does a good job of coming in every once in a while. So although he may not be able to answer your question right away, he does go in there. And of course, if you want to check him out, you can go to SoCalInternetLawyer.com. You don't have to be from Southern California to work with him. Uh, but he is somebody who's great and who has helped me out quite a bit. And uh, if you want to check him out again, SoCalInternetLawyer.com. And hey, really quick, if you need to designate a DMCA agent for a website or an app or something like that, uh, like Richard was saying, you can go to his website, dmcaagentservice.com. Not an affiliate link or anything like that, just uh, wanna help him out because it can help you out too. And this is where you designate a DMCA agent for a website or app if you don't prefer to use your name or phone number or email address publicly. So again, that's dmcaagentservice.com. Hey guys, thank you so much for coming in today. I appreciate it. We got a lot of great stuff coming your way. I cannot wait to share the upcoming information with you. And in order for me to make sure that I, I get it to you, make sure if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show. All you have to do is, uh, whether you're on your device or online, just head over to iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play and just subscribe to the show. And if you leave a review, that's just a bonus. And I read all of them from all the different countries. And I just thank you so much for all your honesty and your feedback. So one more time, thank you so much. And again, my name is Pat Flynn. I'm here to help you make more money, save more time and help more people too. Cheers. And I'll see you in the next episode. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI. And today, I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point. So I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray. And in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John, who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure, and it always finds a bright side. I really love it, and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it.